Hello, Christ Pres family. It's good to be with you. It's over 2,000 years ago, and it's in Bethlehem, and, and you're a shepherd. Not just any shepherd. That night, something really special is going to happen. You, you haven't anticipated this. You are going to be visited by an angel. Hey, in fact, not just an angel, but a lot of angels are going to show up, this wild bunch of angels singing and praising God and making all kinds of joyous ruckus. Well, what might that have been like? It probably terrifying, because nothing like this has happened in your life or indeed in recorded history of the world. This is actually the only time in history in the, in the scripture that a bunch of uh, angels show up all at the same time. So the first angel to show up says, don't be afraid. Yeah, right. This is like those airline attendant announcements. In the case of loss of cabin pressure, remain calm. Mask will magically fall from an area above your head. Put it on like this, pull the straps tight like this, and breathe normally. Right, I would be doing like prepared childbirth breathing. And then it goes, if you're traveling with someone who needs care, put your mask on first and then put the mask of the child you love the most on second. Well, actually, most airlines don't really say that unless you're on Southwest Airlines. Anyway, the angels tell the shepherds to go into Bethlehem and find a child wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. Well, you remember being a shepherd that uh, you thought when you heard this, which stable? That question has mystified people for many years. You notice the, the absence of specific instructions which was probably not just some kind of uncharacteristic omission by that careful scribe, Luke. Uh, and because we've seen the Christmas star this, uh, this last week, and we know that that alignment of Jupiter and Saturn, as uh, incredible as it was, does not really actually rest over a particular stable. So, you know, how did they know? Well, I, I can't tell you, I just don't have time, but what I would like to do is to invite you, if you have time and interest in this afterwards, you can ask me and then I will uh, be able to maybe give some light on that, that little mystery. Well, in this Sunday after Christmas, I'm going to ask us to think about how we live after Christmas instead of during that season of heightened spiritual awareness, which is the Christmas season. In the Christmas dance, Jesus leads, and uh, the Christian dance, Jesus leads and we follow. Some sermons seek to increase our faith or emphasize the sovereign work of God in our lives. They, they show us the lion on the throne like a lamb who was slain. They show us the tree, the river, and the giver of life. They're all about Christ 
leading the dance. And we can rest in knowing who's on the throne. Other sermons, though, focus more on how we follow in this dance that's the Christian dance. And this sermon is more about how we follow, doing our part in living an active faith. The Revelation series was about the vision, apocalypse, tearing back the curtain to show Christ on the throne as the lamb who was slain for us. That sermon series was like the first 11 chapters of Romans. It laid a foundation for faith. This sermon has a similar intent as the last five chapters of Romans, which deal with living day-to-day in faith, applying that which the revelation has made clear to us. I'll draw a lot on psychology, which I see as using psychology in the service of faith. My main objective is to invite us to reflect on our mountaintop and hilltop experiences, like those of the shepherds in that passage from Luke 2. We've all had these mountaintop and and, late, and, uh, and hilltop experiences, times where we felt like, at least for us, that the heavens have opened up and wah, we felt a host of angels were almost uh, singing. Well, I actually haven't had quite that auditory of an experience, but I have had many blessings from the Lord. I became a Christian in the early 1970s Many mountaintop experiences happened to me then. There were times when I felt God was telling me that he was real. The really memorable one was actually before I had faith. Uh, it, was a, it was a service. It was the week after Christmas. And God became real to me in that service. I, I just knew. And I knew that I knew. I've, I've sensed God's presence often since, but not quite so dramatically as that particular time. Another mountaintop experience happened shortly after I, uh, uh, shortly after that. I felt like I was a lover of God, kind of like Cornelius in Acts was a God lover, but I didn't really understand why this Jesus thing was necessary. Well, my pastor at that time asked me to review a book that had come in the mail. The book was Evangelism Explosion by D. James Kennedy, which laid out the gospel very, very clearly. Now, although I had heard the Christian message many times growing up in a Southern Baptist church in Tennessee, it just bounced off of my skull. But that particular night, suddenly, it all made sense. Why this time? I don't know. It's a mystery. But I knew that Jesus had died for me specifically, and not just for all people in general. Now, some mountaintops happened when I grew in theological understanding. Uh, That came about uh, in waves after I was kind of reading Francis Schaeffer's uh, works, visiting Labrie, which was Schaeffer's community in, in Waymo, Switzerland. 
and attending Evangelical Free Church during my graduate school. Sometimes I had uh, hilltop experiences when I was counseling. I can remember being in session with this woman once, and she called herself a lapsed Catholic. I think today the, uh, the given psychological term we might call her is a hot mess. She had a lot of problems. She was hurting in so many ways it made me, as her counselor, almost lose hope. And it, as she talked, I just didn't know what to do, and so I did what counselors aren't supposed to do. I stopped listening to her. I kept nodding, of course, like one of those little dogs in the back of a car, you know, just nod and nod. And instead, I was, I was praying for her. And suddenly, just in the midst of me praying for her, she stopped talking and she said, I think I need to go back to Mass. And I said, I, I, I think you do. Well, that was the turning point in her counseling and it was a mountaintop experience for me. I also had times of assurance that God still worked miracles today. We had five miracles in about two years in our little church in California in the 70s. By the 1980s, after moving to Richmond, I had other mountaintop experiences. I, I had times of awakened Christian imagination when reading C.S. Lewis's fiction and J.R.R. Tolkien's Ring Trilogy. I, had, I saw God work miracles, healing Katiana's hearing uh, after we got Christ Prez praying for. In the 1990s, my mountaintop experiences were, were different. God comforted me after my mom was murdered in 1996, and I was amazingly able to forgive the young man who murdered her. And I also saw God's hand amazingly in getting me to be able to speak in South Africa to the Truth and Reconciliation Commission shortly after that. From 2000 to the date, to date uh, there were other uh, mountaintop or hilltop experiences. God has been faithful in my times of struggle in 2005 after my brother committed suicide. I've had times of assurance as Kirby's gone through uh, a 20-year um, uh, journey uh, of chronic pain and illness. Well, we all have these mountaintop or at least hilltop experiences. They, they happen often. You know, they happened in the Bible. Peter must have been absolutely giddy when he said to Jesus, you are the Messiah, son of the living God, in Matthew 16. And Jesus said, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my Father in heaven. But then, you know, almost before Peter can take a step, he put his foot in his mouth and Jesus told him, get behind me, Satan. Mountaintops come and go so quickly with Peter. Peter betrayed Jesus and within a few days, Jesus was dining with him and, and other fishermen and, and assuring him of love and, and giving him a life's mission to feed my lambs, take care of my sheep, feed my sheep. 
you recall that, that Peter and John and James went with Jesus up the Mount of Transfiguration where they met Moses and Elijah. And their reaction was, let's just camp here in this mountaintop experience. They wanted to stay in that elevated emotional state, but Jesus returned with them to their usual walk back in the valley. You know, this seems to be life in a nutshell. We experience mountaintop and hilltop highs and valley, canyon, and the pit of despair, lows. But for good or ill, they don't last forever. And sometimes we can sense Jesus very strongly in them, but sometimes not. So what do we do in our day-to-day walkabout now that Christmas is over or after a hilltop experience? How do we then live? The shepherds had a life-transforming experience, and yet they certainly didn't throw off their shepherd clothes and don suits and enter politics. They didn't drop out and become religious hermits. Instead, they had to do what we have to do after a mountaintop or hilltop experience or a pit of despair low. They dedicated themselves to renewed care of the sheep who were in their charge. But color me skeptical, I, I bet big bucks that they often thought in the time after that, how can I regain that mountaintop experience? Why don't the angels show up and sing to me anymore? How can I rekindle my first love? Why did they think that? Well, because it's natural. It's the way that God made us. We evaluate our experiences in a, a really weird and not really logical way. What happens, for example, when a woman goes through labor without medication. Well, suppose that each 15 minutes she rates her pain from zero to 10. So for four hours of labor, it climbs gradually up from about a one to a four. And then transition hits. Now, if you've never seen or experienced childbirth transition, this is where for some women, a contraction hits and they stand up in the stirrups, their head spins around, and they begin yelling at the husband that you caused this to happen. If asked to rate their pain at the moment, the woman will likely say nine or 10. If, and this is a big if, the woman does not exactly karate chop the researcher into unconsciousness for having the stupidity to ask something during transition. And just after birth, she rates her pain maybe as eight. Later, a researcher very cautiously asked her to make an average rating for how much her labor pain, uh, what was her labor pain on that scale of one to 10? Instead of logically averaging four hours of pain at, let's say, at three, against one hour of pain at 10, which would probably end up being something like an average of 4.5, 
She doesn't say 4.5. She says the pain was about nine of labor. That ain't logical, but it's natural. You see, we, we rate the good and the bad experiences in life according to what psychologists call a peak end rule for good experiences or a pit end rule for bad experiences. Because she was rating a painful experience, she subjectively averages the pit, which was 10, and the end, which was eight, and she comes up with a rating of nine. When we rate a good experience, we do the same thing, averaging the peak experience with the end. And so when I look back over my life and see all my good spiritual experiences, I see a lot of peaks, eights, nines, tens. And then I look at my life now, and if I'm average in the USA, I'll say probably six. And so I think, why am I only at six when I know that there are all those mountaintops in my past? Why can I not recapture the angel's song? Why can't I rekindle my first love? Well, it turns out psychology tells us some things about this. You see, love is composed of three components, intimacy, commitment, and passion. So relationships are often very intense and positive at the beginning. That initial love is fueled by passion. But things change over time. This is true with my love relationship with Jesus, too. But it's also true for satisfaction with marriages, with families, with parenting, with friends, with jobs, with churches, even hobbies and leisure activities. There are many reasons why that passion uh, uh, coasts down very quickly after the first few years, but I think, think about my hilltop experiences that I mentioned. You may have noticed that most of them happened actually between about 1970 when I became a Christian and 1982. Then two big events happened in the 1990s, the pit of my mother's murder and yet one where I felt God's comfort strongly and a career-changing trip to South Africa. Again, in 2000 to date, I, I struggle with God uh, after my brother's suicide and you know, yet I've also been confident of God's presence as Kirby and I have walked through this period dealing with her pain. Lots of emotional, passionate events happen early in relationships because there are lots of firsts. Firsts are often peaks. Sometimes they're pits, but mostly they're peaks. First kiss. First time somebody says, I love you. And the same thing happens in our relationship with the Lord. After the first years, the opportunity to experience more firsts decreases sharply. And the sheer number of firsts can't be completely recaptured. Sorry, but that's the facts of life. So love matures 
Instead of the pizzazz of the first, which elevates our sparkling passion, we must create the warm hearth of intimacy and the mature, solid ground of commitment. Mature love has many shared moments of intimacy and a sense of commitment, but it must also strive to create some peaks too. So here's our plan for the rest of the sermon. First, uh, let's look at uh, how to maintain commitment and intimacy in our relationship with the Lord. This is the bulk of how the shepherds and we must live after Christmas. After that, however, I'll discuss all too briefly, I'm afraid, how to create some positive peaks and put some passion back into the rela our relationship with the Lord. I'm sure that in the weeks and years after the angels sang, the shepherds bonded together with the other shepherds who had similar experiences. They sought to encourage each other through the ups and downs of life on the hill, in the plain, in the valley, through sunny days, through stormy days. They certainly had a different identity after the angel's visit. They were blessed, not just among shepherds, but they were blessed among humans. That new identity gave them a desire to share what they had experienced. It gave them hope for the future. Their eyes had been opened to the reality of the unseen world, and from that, there was no going back. Even as memory dimmed, they didn't have a roadmap to the future, but after that experience, they knew the destination without doubt. Their bonding together not only gave them emotional support, it also enlarged their identity. Now, cognitive psychology tells us that we are more than merely an individual. We have what's called extended cognition. Cognition is just mental activity. Think of this, Kirby and I watch movies, as I'm sure many of you all do, and uh, we, as we uh, watch uh, a, a particular actor, uh, we usually engage in saying something like, where have we seen him before? What movie have we seen him before? And so we scan our memories and maybe we might remember another movie that this person come in, ah yes, he was in Star Wars, a part to 94. And then usually with a sigh, I kind of run up the white flag and I go to IMDB. Uh, whoa, dude, I find that this actor has been in 154 movies of which I've seen about three. The point is, I'm not just as smart as my brain, which I fear is getting dumber with every passing year. No, I am as smart as that plus IMDB, plus Google. And don't forget, I'm also as smart as Kirby and me together. My identity is extended into the machines that I interact with, the books I read, but very, very importantly, the people I have conversations with and enjoy a joint identity with. Now let's, let's explore what that means just a little bit. 
I'm not just a member of Christ Presbyterian Church, but my actual identity extends out from the members of the church that I'm attached to. So when you or I chat, we are mutually extending our own identities outward. If we belong to a, a small group or a Sunday school group together, our identities take in all of those other member, uh, members. When I pray, I am in a, uh, uh, when they pray, I am in effect also praying. Paul was a pretty smart guy. He described the church as one body, each member with different functions coordinating together so that uh, we act as a body of Christ on earth. Now, Paul also picked this up with married partners as being one flesh. I was an engineer back before I became a psychologist, and my art ability actually kind of maxed out with a block diagram. But Kirby can do art really well. And so I can legitimately claim, because we're one flesh, that I can draw beautifully. We are one flesh. I'm also really likable and personable and warm because Kirby's all of those things. And don't even get me started on creativity. I, I definitely get about 100% of my creativity because Kirby's creative. But hey, this isn't one-sided after all. You know, she can design psychological experiments and do statistics. You know, somehow I think I got the best of that exchange. Just saying. Well, it gets better because you and I are in the same local body of Christ. So I can sing like Harry Gore and Mike Savino and Tripper. I can preach like Kevin. I can bake bread like Leo, be compassionate, crossover nurse like Marilyn, be of continual good cheer like Alex, do math like Leo Wibberly, hold social get-togethers like Kathy and Leo, serve the world like Deanne and Roger, be faithful even when going through hard times like E.G. and Verona, know the Bible like Jason and Meredith, be funny like Pat Braxton and a faithful father like Ray, be logical and composed yet warm and helpful like Karen and Darlene, and be loving and compassionate like Allison Bass, be welcoming, hospitable, and affirming like Libby, and bring joy to many like Susie Fletcher. As you can see by this just really abbreviated list, I am a very talented guy. And I have many more of those extended talents that I just didn't have time to mention. Uh, so I, I, I wish that I had time to just run through everyone that is part of my extended personality. I, you know, I read where Governor Northam uh, was talking about limiting the size of worship gatherings, and he said that he could be just as spiritual alone at home as in church, a church service. Well, you know, I think that's a really impoverished way of thinking about spirituality. It certainly is not a Christian way of thinking about spirituality. It's a modern individualistic way of seeing spirituality as this private, you and me God experience. But as we've just seen, we are so much more than you and me God. 
We are the body of Christ having the mind of Christ and being the feet, the hands, and the heart of the body. We're like a husband and wife, one flesh, one body. Commitment and intimacy are enhanced in a church that one stays committed to over years rather than trying to keep recapturing the angel song of those mountaintop experiences by seeking church after church. Love is not just about intimacy and commitment. We do still need passion, but we don't have a lot of those firsts to rely on. You know, I wish I could give you a hundred specific suggestions to help you build new emotional peaks and quickly transform the pits into the uh, least, uh, to at least level ground. But I, I said that my goal of this sermon was to guide us to think about our spiritual life over the next week and maybe perhaps the next year. So this might just be baby steps to get you started. What new thing can you do to rejuvenate your relationship with the Lord? It's like rejuvenating your relationship with your mate. For example, during the COVID-19 lockdown, Kirby and I started reading aloud each night after dinner, something we hadn't done before, but it's been very precious since then. Renewing our faith walk can involve things like this. Joining a group that you weren't in before, trying a different type of praying, starting a new type of Bible study project, reading a gasp theology book, listening to a new podcast or TED Talk or YouTube Talk, doing an art project, writing a Christmas song, taking on uh, an uh, online course through a Christian university. There, there are a lot of ways to create firsts and put some pizzazz back in the relationship. So what would be renewing for you? You see, that's your homework to figure this out. What would be renewing for you? Hey, I, I am a teacher, what'd you expect? Well, we're now a couple of days after Christmas. We're facing the new year. Instead of making New Year's resolutions, which have about a 5% chance of uh, following through on, uh, when engaged with good intentions, willpower, and even prayer, instead, think of this. Make small changes that will make a big difference in your relationship with the Lord. Pick a hero of the virtue that you're seeking to build. Structure your life to make your relationship likely to grow, such as asking yourself how you can get or stay more engaged with others at church. Think ahead to potential challenges and then plan how you're gonna cope with those challenges in, in tough times. These things will help with intimacy and commitment. We all have peak experiences and pits but instead of letting them merely happen to you, think of ways to best position yourself to allow Jesus to work in your life, and then stay vigilant to discern the work of the Holy Spirit in your life. We can't 
live perpetually on a mountaintop as much as we'd like to, we will have peaks and pits. We all have times of what feels like aggravating level feelings of closeness to the Lord when we want to see growth. But our sure and certain knowledge is this. Jesus walks with us, inspiring, comforting, lifting, and soothing. He is the Lion of Judah, like a lamb who was slain on the throne. We can rest in that. Amen.